I'm in like a unitard, I call it. It's black with white stars all over it. So I'm wearing my unitard because I haven't had time to get changed with a white T-shirt over the top. I'm sitting on my unmade bed. Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader and I've been in the fire and come out the other side. I had a panic attack live on television, (laughs) yep, a few years ago. And the funny thing is of the hundreds, possibly even thousands of people I've interviewed over the years, confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. You might think you know Jessica Rowe because of all the years she's been on Australian television or maybe from her many books, but I bet you probably didn't know she snorts when she laughs. I can't believe you just snorted. All that because she was brave enough to stand up to TV bosses. News in Australia has fundamentally changed. I know, isn't it shocking? I look back to and think, oh my goodness. She's raw and real about what it took to get through being quote unquote boned on national TV. It was a absolutely shocking, bizarre, weird, uh, weird's probably not the right word, but a a terribly painful time. And on being a crap housewife. And it was very hard for me to ask for help and to say I was struggling and I needed help. I first met Jess in the late 90s when I was on work experience and what you might think you know about her doesn't even come close to describing the courage she summoned to live life on her terms. So here's Jessica Rowe on claiming her confidence. Like Katrina, that is so incredible, you sharing that story because, wow, that just takes me back. What am I, 50 now? So I would have probably been maybe 23, 22, 23. Yeah, you were a baby. So what, 27 years ago and, oh, my goodness. Well, Prime Television, I loved working at Prime. It was my first proper TV job. I'd been a receptionist previously at Channel 9. I had done a communications degree and then my first job was as a receptionist. And when I was doing that job, which I was hopeless at, I kept hanging up on people. It was was in the old days. They weren't fancy telephones. You know, it was the sort of you'd have to push a button and then put the person's extension in and then push another button and then put them through. And I couldn't even work that out. And while I was doing that, I was sending out resumes and at the time we just had VHS machines so I had like a video copy of different things I'd done at uni and I sent them out to everywhere and I was lucky enough to land an interview and then a job at Prime Television as a reporter and a weather presenter and it was such a great start for me because I learned so much. I also was in an environment that was very supportive environment. I had a fantastic boss, a wonderful man called Ken Begg, and I couldn't have had a better start because I look back and I think about this quite a lot. If I hadn't have had him at the start of my career, I don't think I would 
still be in media. I don't think I would have lasted as long as I did in media because he was someone who believed in me early on. He let me make mistakes and supported me but but believed in me. And I, I think for all of us, when we are starting out and even as we continue, you need to have people in your corner. You, you need to have people who back you come what may, because none of us are perfect and we are going to stumble and stuff up at times. And I was really lucky to have him. And and I suppose, I mean, you're mentioning work experience. I just know I did so much work experience when I was at uni and it made such a difference if someone actually took the time to talk to me, explain what they were doing, take me out on a story so I didn't feel like I was just sitting in a corner reading a newspaper or trying to disappear into a wall. It was so good if someone actually took the time. So um, that was, I was always really, it was an important thing for me to also to do, to kind of share that. And because I'd had such good experiences with with people that I remember, but um, I really wanted to make sure that I did that for others. So it's lovely that you remember that, Katrina. Uh, No, not only do I remember it, but I I really treasured and valued that throughout the years. So you definitely did give back. So thank you so much. Now, going back in time, I know you grew up in Sydney and you have written a book with your mum, which which went into a little bit of detail about your childhood. But where did you get that dream from to go into media and to become the, the big personality that you have become? Was that always a dream for you as a little girl? I think when I was a little girl, I was more dreaming of being an astronaut or a ballerina or a vet. They were the sorts of things that took up my daydreaming. And it wasn't until I got to high school that I really started to think seriously about wanting to be a journalist. And I'd always loved ideas and words and books. And my mum especially is a voracious reader and we always had, we had this massive bookshelf that covered one of a whole wall in our living room growing up and it was always jam-packed full of books and mum never spent money on anything apart from books but she'd always sort of say, give this a read or I think you might like this. And so from a really young age I was surrounded by this world of books and, and I think what I love about reading is it's such not only is it an escape, but it's also an opportunity to experience different lives, different ideas, different people's experiences. But maybe even more so than that, it's a connection through storytelling. And I think the power of sharing our stories is is just phenomenal. And for me, becoming a journalist began in that idea of sharing people's stories and I had the romantic idea in high school of being an overseas correspondent that was what I had my heart set on I never sort of got around to doing that but that that was my dream and I think probably year eight year nine was when it really started to crystallize for me that that was what I wanted to do with my life. Now, as I mentioned, one of the really powerful stories that you shared with your mum was growing up with her illness, her her manic depressive illness and also her depression. And you say that you never felt embarrassed by it, but you did feel powerless. Describe what that was like growing up with your mum. And your mum wasn't diagnosed for quite some time, was she? That's right. So mum's got 
bipolar disorder as it's known now. And she wasn't diagnosed until she was in her early 30s. So I think I was probably about 12 then, 12 or 13. But that didn't mean that mum hadn't had episodes when we were younger of her illness as well. It wasn't until, as I said, she was that little bit older that she was diagnosed. And so for her, that diagnosis was an enormous relief because finally she could could put a label, which she was desperate for, on what she was experiencing, that it wasn't just a depression or it wasn't just a hard time. It was a really serious mental illness. And, and I think for my sisters and I growing up, because I've got two younger sisters, it was really hard. And, and anyone who has had a loved one who has a mental illness relates to this. And it's so common, but we don't talk about it enough. I think we talk about it more now. But when we were younger, not a lot of people shared their family's experience. And it can be very isolating. I used to feel like it was my job to cheer my mum up to make my mum better and of course I realise now that's impossible you you cannot purely through the force of your sunny personality (laughs) cure someone's mental illness but as a little girl I early on assumed the role of being the cheerleader in our family the one who sort of tell the stories tell the jokes make people smile keep everyone's mood up and in a way that I think helped me in parts of my life, but it also didn't help me in other parts of my life. But I know I'm sort of fast forwarding. But yeah, as a young girl, and then as a teenager, it was really hard to see the person that you love most in the world, unable to cope. And so mum would frequently be in psychiatric hospitals, sometimes for months at a time, when she would be going through a particularly dark time. And we were very lucky because although my parents had divorced when we were younger, my mum and dad still had, you know, a good civil relationship. And we would go and stay with my dad and stepmom for long periods of time when mum was unwell. So we were lucky in the sense that we had a continuity of care and love. We never felt abandoned. We never felt that we were sort of making trouble for another family or a burden to anyone that we still had this beautiful love and support thanks to my dad and stepmom and then of course my mum because once she got better it would sort of go back to normal for want of a better word I mean I don't now believe there's anything such as normal but it it was really hard but what I find fascinating too Katrina is it's still hard. I mean, mum's illness is a chronic illness and there are still times when she is unwell and I still feel like that little girl powerless to help her, to fix her, to make her feel right and that she just has to um, go to hospital because that's often she'll be so unwell that's the safest place for her. And she just has to kind of ride out her illness. And and still as a grown-up, I still feel that same sense of powerlessness and despair and upset and unfairness that it's happening to mum, to our family. But, of course, it's not just happening to my mum. It's happening to so many families right across the country. And that's why, for me, I'm very passionate about mental health awareness but also sharing our stories 
but sharing them in a very honest way that that life is hard for many people. But just because it is hard some of the time doesn't mean it always has to be hard. I'm a huge believer in hope. I'm a peddler in hope in the sense that Mm -hmm. we need to lead, lead our lives in a hopeful way that things, if they're not good now, they're not always going to be like this. It will pass. And I appreciate, though, when someone is in the depths of a terrible depression or supporting someone going through a terribly hard time, it feels like it will never end, but but it will. And I think we now more than ever need to travel hopefully through our lives. Now, a lot has changed in the 15 years since you published that book, (laughs) but back in 2005, mental illness wasn't really spoken about as openly as it is now. I think through the lens of confidence, for your mum to come out and talk about it so openly and for you having the media profile that that you have, was that, that that must have taken a lot of digging deep, I would imagine, in 2005 to share those stories so openly? Well, it it was hard, but mum has always been open about her illness. She was always very open with with us, with my sisters and I, that it was never something that she felt she had to hide from us. We always spoke openly about it as a family and I think that is so essential. And then what happened was mum's a beautiful writer and she's also published a number of novels and there was a novel that she published and the main character in in this particular novel that was called Blood Songs has bipolar disorder. So she wrote in the most extraordinary way about this person's illness. So that was when I suppose for mum it first came to prominence and that was when the two of us decided that there had to be something more than what was happening that we could do in the sense that I at the time was working for Channel 10. I was a news presenter in Sydney for them and there were lots of obviously wonderful sort of window dressing things that come along with jobs like that. But also I think, and both my parents taught my sisters and I this, that with what you do comes a responsibility that you need to give back and you need to do what you can to help other people. And and I sort of thought, as did mum, that with my profile, we could talk about mental illness. And so mum and I did a number of interviews on the back of her book about our family's experience. And the, the feedback, the that we got from people was overwhelming and I hadn't expected it. This was way before Twitter, Instagram, all of that sort of stuff. It was There was emails and there was just snail mail. But the beautiful cards and letters that I got from people that mum got that would be sent care of me at Channel 10, basically saying thank you for talking about your family's experience because that is my family's experience. I don't feel so alone now. I feel understood. So we hadn't expected that. And I think because of that reaction, we thought we have to keep talking about this. And we did some work with Beyond Blue where we would talk to audiences about removing the stigma of mental illness, about the impact that it can have on families, but also showing that 
it doesn't have to be a devastating impact. Of course, at the time, it is so difficult, but it doesn't have to be all of your life. And so mum and I did a lot of work with Beyond Blue, sharing our family's experience. And then part of that, what I did was uh, um, wonderful Jackie Frank, who was the then editor of Marie Claire magazine, was doing a series in her magazine, but also on Channel 10 called What Women Want. And it was a series of, it was women talking publicly about something that was close to their heart. And there was, I think, the event that I did, there was maybe five of us and we all spoke about very different issues and and I decided to speak about mental illness and it was filmed and then it was put together as a show on Channel 10. And that was the first time that I'd spoken to such a big audience about our family's experience. And I remember being very nervous about exposing myself and my family. And I spoke uh, a lot with my mum and my sisters about it, but we decided together as a family that it was important to do. And uh, I remember with my speech, I, I worked a lot on it and it took me a long time to write it because when I first wrote it, there wasn't enough detail in it. There wasn't, it was very sort of on the surface. And Jackie Frank was terrific. She kept sort of really encouraging me to say, well, tell me more here, expand on this. How did you cope with that? What did that really look like? And what does that mean? So I worked very hard on my speech. And then I had a wonderful woman to raise who helped me. She was like a voice coach and a speech, I suppose, a speech coach as well. And she worked with me on the speech because there was a part of me, a big part of me that was very nervous about breaking down, about bursting into tears while I was talking about it. And I didn't want to do that because I wanted to be strong and vulnerable at the same time, but not teary because I thought it was important to get my message across in a very calm and uh, clear way. So Therese really helped me work on that. So I was almost—I was pretty much at the point with my speech, even though I'd written it down word for word what I was going to say, by the time it came to presenting it, I, I, pro- I knew it. I knew it in my heart because it was my story. And I'll never forget that night going out, waiting in the wings, it was down in Melbourne at the Melbourne Arts Centre, and I was pitch black standing in the wings and the audience was full of people and a wonderful friend of mine had made me this beautiful sort of Gucci-inspired purple blouse that had sequins on the top and I was feeling, you know, I felt, good in my outfit because I wanted that sounds very you (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to feel I think when you're doing things that are very much out of your comfort zone you want to feel that you're bulletproof in the sense that yes I'm dressed for this or I'm you know I'm not going to worry about the exterior because that's taken care of so I was feeling good about my my exterior while my interior was really ah and then I stepped out onto the stage and I remember I just took a deep breath and then I began and and it was such a revelation for me because I found as I told my story, I, I told it in a very calm, it was emotional but it was in a calm way 
and and I remember looking out and it was dead quiet and there was a part of me that was thinking oh my god it's so quiet but then I kept going and and then I, and then there was a huge applause at the end of it and afterwards so many people came up and thanked me and um, said thank you for talking about this and then when it was um, televised on air I got beautiful cards and letters and people stopping me in the street thanking me and and I was blown away and but most importantly I was hoping that mum would be okay about it too because obviously it was very much my mum's story as well that I was sharing or our family story but she was so proud of me and and I think for me doing that speech in such a public way and almost I suppose in an unexpected way because not a lot of people knew that that had been my family's experience at the time was a real watershed moment for me in the sense that there was something bigger at play that I for me my mental health work is my life's greatest work and it informs everything that I do and that's the thing that I'm most proud of but it's also the thing that keeps me going and even though there are times when I think oh do I want to put myself out there again or do I put myself out there again but but because I've seen the power of my story to connect to other people's stories and to encourage their sharing of stories, that's what keeps me going because all of us want to feel understood. No one wants to feel alone and things like mental illness can be terribly isolating and, and, and continue to be. But if you can feel that it's not just you, it's not just your family going through this. That, I think, is what gives people hope and that is what inspires me to keep going. So what then happened off the back of that particular speech that I gave was the, um, the publishers, Alan and Unwin, approached Mum and I about writing our family story together and that book was called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times and that was an extraordinary thing to share with my mum because we found that we had a conversation through our words, through our writing and in a way doing that was easier than sitting down face to face because how we decided to write the book was we came up with these chapter topics and then both of us went away to write our chapter about that particular time in our lives and then we exchanged our drafts to have a look and I found there was so much that I didn't know about my mum's illness that I didn't understand that I learnt through reading her manuscript but at the same time there was so much that mum learnt about me and the impact and the sadness that her illness had had on me in my life that she hadn't thought of or expected. So it was an extraordinary thing to share together and, and, a, and a very 
just thinking of the right word, nurturing thing almost in a way to do together because sometimes having these sorts of conversations with people you love actually face-to-face can be difficult because it could, it can be hurtful. Things can be taken out of context. Things can escalate. Whereas I think by doing it through words, through exchanging uh, manuscripts, that was a more gentle way of having this conversation about what mental illness had meant to our family. And it was it was a real privilege to be able to do that with my mum because I understand that for many other families it's not as simple and that there is a lot of hurt and misunderstanding and pain and tragedy and angst that that you can't have those conversations. So I felt very blessed that I could do that with my mum and that then we were able to to do this book together. It was such a extraordinary thing to share and something that had grown. I mean, we would have never have dreamt that it would have happened together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What an incredibly healing gift for both of you yeah. and the ripple effect yes. that that has had, Jess. You've impacted so many lives and people, I know you have received a lot of feedback, but there are a lot of people who haven't got in touch with you whose lives have been altered by your openness and honesty as well. So gosh, well done to you. I'm Katrina Blowers and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence. Up next, Jessica Rowe gets pretty vulnerable about one of the worst times of her life, losing her job in breakfast television, being bullied in the media and the heartbreak of going public with postnatal depression. We were just mentioning then about attitudinally how much has changed well since 2005. I kind of want to go back uh, to a section from another book that you've written, Is This My Beautiful Life, where you talk about your early days in television. I have to confess I had no idea that there once was a time when women were not allowed to read the lead story or do the interviews on air. <gasps> I I just, honestly, I was gobsmacked by this. Can you explain that time and what you did about it? I know, isn't it shocking? I look back to and think, oh, my goodness. Well, this was a time when I was reading the news in Sydney for Channel 10 and I was um, co-presenting that with a male colleague and I got that job early on in the sense of I began that job I think when I was about 25 and I'd come from I'd worked in Canberra at Prime Television then I moved to Melbourne where I was a reporter at Channel 9 and then I got an opportunity to audition for the news reading role at Channel 10 and I got that job which was a dream come true finally I was moving home after living away from home for many years and I got this wonderful job And I loved it. It was such an opportunity. Of course, when I first began in the role, I was inexperienced and I hadn't had a lot of presenting experience, reporting experience. But of course, as the years went on, I became much better in that role and I was more experienced. So when I started, 
I didn't expect to be given perhaps the same opportunities as my male colleague who would read what we call the lead news story. So that's the main news story that heads the bulletin each night. He would also do all the interviews. And at the start, I didn't have a problem with that because I knew I had a bit to learn. But as the years went by, this did not change. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. And, you know, why am I not getting a chance to do interviews? Why am I not also getting a chance to read the main news lead news story, which often would have interviews off the back of it? And, and I knew, I knew the reason, but I was gobsmacked when I went to my then news director to ask him. So I said, you know, why is it that Ron gets to read the lead news story and I don't? And he said to me, well, lovey, Ron's a man <laughs> and you're a woman. Now, oh my I gosh. was gobsmacked that, that my male boss had no qualms articulating that to me because I knew that was the reason. I knew that was the reason why, but I could not believe that he had no problems telling me that. And at the time, at, at the 10 Network, it was all what we call double-headed news bulletins. So it was a male and a female reading the news in right around the country. And not one female read the lead news story or did any of the interviews. So I then sussed all of this out. And I thought, you know what, enough time has passed. I'm not going to continue sucking this up because I had learned over my years in media, that you have to pick your battles. Some things you just have to manage at the time and work through. Other other times you can actually go, no, I'm going to fight this battle. So this, the time had come where I thought, no, I'm not going to keep sucking this up. So I went to our human resources department to say, I have had this conversation with my boss and I'd written it down, I documented it, and they all looked at me aghast thinking, uh-oh, and they said, oh, no, 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 he's joking, no, he's just having a joke. And I said, well, no, I don't think he is having a joke because if you look around the country, not one female reads the lead news story or does an interview. And they had their mouth hanging open going, oh, oh really? And I went, yes, really? So the very next day, I then was permitted to read the lead news story. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, and do the interviews. My very generous male colleague didn't speak to me for a couple of months because he thought I was <gasps> being um, uppity and, you know, how dare I, which was absurd anyway, but that's a whole separate story. So it was just, it was phenomenal that, that you know, I look back during that time now and think I can't believe that was the way it was, but but it was, and but I think that sort of goes to as well the importance for all of us. There are times when you need to stand up, and there are other times where you think no, it's not worth it. But this was a particular time where I thought I have now been here. I think I'd been there for seven years by that time or maybe it was five years, but it was quite a period of time. It wasn't as if I'd just begun in the role and decided to make a song and dance. I had proven my stripes time and time again. And so that was when I thought, no, I'm going to stand up and, and, and be counted here. And, and I'm, I'm you know, so glad I did it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's extraordinary that 
that it happened and that and not that long ago. <laughs> not that long ago at all, which is just it's incredible and good on you. <laughs> Because I, we now have, we still have a double header, a male and a female um, co-host for the Seven News Bulletin in Brisbane, and it is a given. We just swap, we just take it in yes. turns every night. So that's probably big part thanks to you. Oh. So thank you, Jess. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> now I want to jump forward to a time when, when I look at you and I think of you, um, this is a big standout for me of when you stood in your power and when I really feel like you dug deep with your confidence and that was during your time at the Today Show and I'm just going to read a little excerpt from your memoir where you say um, that the closest that you came to cracking during that Today experience was when you woke up one Sunday morning in 2006 to see more unpleasant headlines in both Sydney newspapers. The Sunday Telegraph TV guide included a cover photo after a poll voted me the most annoying person on television. The Sun Herald had an article entitled The Loneliest Job on TV. How did you get through that time and the whole Eddie Maguire boning scandal, which is still one of the most quoted uh, (laughs) um, incidents in, I think, television history to this day? How did you get through that? Oh, it was terrible. It was a absolutely shocking, bizarre, Weird, uh, weird's not probably not the right word, but a, a terribly painful time. However, how did I get through it? You just do. And I think for me, looking back and you see everything that happened, it, it, it you, I just sort of still think, oh my God, I can't believe all of that happened. But when you're in the midst of a storm, you don't know what's going to come next. So all you can do is deal with what's happening right then and there. Like what is happening now? How do I manage now? So when I got that job opportunity to join the Today Show, it was a risk. I'd been at Channel 10 for 10 years in a job that that I enjoyed, that was going very well. I was very comfortable in that role and a role that I could have potentially stayed in for a long, long time. But I was at a point where I thought, I don't want to get stuck in a rut or I need to keep challenging myself. So I jumped at this opportunity to have, you know, to join the Today Show. So I don't for a moment regret that decision because I think we have to take risks in our lives because that's when we discover what we're made of, who matters and what matters. So I don't regret making that choice at all because I thought here I am with an opportunity to work on one of the flagship programs in Australia doing breakfast television and little did I know that I would then almost become (laughs) this sort of flashpoint for all that was wrong with breakfast television, all that was wrong with Channel 9. I just didn't realise that I would be the focus of that. So what I did, I suppose, was, I mean, I remember even after my first day on air, and this was, again, before Twitter, before Instagram, before Facebook, before all of that stuff. It was just, um, you know, people posting on websites things. But after my first day on air, there was this awful article published 
in the paper about how terrible I was and likening me to a velociraptor and it was just oh what yeah, hideous <laughs> it was hideous and I remember just reading it going oh my god what have I like wow I've only done one show so and, and so I suppose my point of saying that is I thought oh well that'll be it and then I can just get on with my job but it was almost like each day or each week there would be something else that would happen and for me what I did was I thought I have to be not only true to myself but I am going to be a prophet a professional I'm going to do the job that I have been paid to do so people can have a go at my laugh at my appearance I remember people having a go at the fact that I was childless totally unaware that I was going through IVF at the time you know I thought Mm. people can have a go at all of these exterior things but what I can do is do my job what I can do is show up every day so I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of saying, oh, and look, she, she's not even fronting up to work or she's not even doing a job. I just kept showing up. And that was what I did. It was just, uh, but it was so difficult. It was awful because I increasingly felt isolated in the sense of I was in a workplace where I had no support, that I was like an island. <laughs> <laughs> but mm. and that's very difficult when it you feel like it is just you and everyone around you has got something else going on or so, uh, everyone else and in scenarios like that it's not a generous working environment everyone wants to protect their own patch so people retreat into their shells so all i could do again was just keep showing up but what also kept me going was my beautiful husband, my family, even though the IVF was emotionally exhausting, during that year I fell pregnant. So that was my wonderful secret that kept me going when everything seemingly was falling apart on a professional level, that I thought I have got something far more meaningful and valuable growing inside of my belly and that was what helped me keep going as well because I thought, no, this is something that is far more important than any of this television nonsense. And that that kept Allegra, my darling Allegra, who's now 13, she kept me going. And then, yeah. and then the other thing that happened over time was the kindness of strangers and the kindness of colleagues, people who I looked up to in the media industry, who took the time to ring me, to write to me. I'll never forget Wendy Harmer, who I just adore, wrote me the most beautiful message that I still have, that I held on to. And um, Yana Vent, Kerri-Ann Kennelly, Tracy Grimshaw, Natasha's Dr. Spoyer, many, many, Liz Hayes, she was extraordinary. You know, a lot of Peter Harvey, the late, great Peter Harvey, Mm. you know, amazing people, you know, giants of our industry who I admired and looked up to enormously. They took the time to say, hang in there. 
<laughs> and I remember Yarn Event talking to me saying, because I, you know, I wanted, to, I still want to grow up and be Yarn Event. You know, I remember oh, she yes. spoke to me. She took the time to say, you know, in her career, she said there have been times when she was the target of the most extraordinary criticism and attention. But then she said, but for no apparent reason, it suddenly starts to shift. The tide will change and you can't, you don't know why or when, but she said that will happen to you. <laughs> you just have to hang in there. So thanks to people like that, thanks to, again, beautiful strangers sending me cards, emails, leaving messages with Channel 9 reception saying, we love you, hang in there, keep laughing, ignore this, ignore that. All of that really made me grit my teeth and go, nah, I'm not going to be pushed. And I'm a stubborn soul too. And and I think stubbornness can be a really good quality sometimes. And and I was stubborn and I wasn't going to make it easy for the powers that be to get rid of me. Even though I know they wanted to, I thought, no, I'm again, I'm going to keep showing up and be professional. And if you want to get rid of me, it's going to be very difficult because I'm going to keep doing my job. And that I know that this is a very long answer to how did I get through it, but it was a combination of not knowing what would happen each day because I think if I had seen what would be coming, it would have been harder to get through. Falling pregnant and also the incredible kindness and support of, of colleagues who I admired and looked up to and the kindness of strangers who took the time to speak to me, to write to me, to say, we believe in you, hang in there. That was what made me, you know, hang in there until I knew I knew that they were going to sack me and I knew that because um, I couldn't get a guarantee from them that my job would be there when I came back from maternity leave even though it's illegal to sack someone on maternity leave, I couldn't get a guarantee from them when I left. So I knew, I thought they are going to sack me after I've had my baby, which they did. Mm, Goodness. Since then, I mean, that ending has led to so many unimaginable new beginnings for you. I mean, you've gone back to Channel 10, you've um, been with the Seven Network, you've done Dancing with the Stars and some dirty dancing. (laughs) But what I would love to talk about is how you have just created this whole new following for yourself which is just the most engaged passionate following as a crap housewife (laughs) when everyone else is putting beautiful filters of sunsets you're posting pictures of snags on bread I just love this (laughs) we have I mean I've got to because for me I'm a proud crap housewife and how it all began, Katrina, was I, you know, I also had terrible postnatal depression after the birth of both Allegra and Giselle and that was a terrible time for me and it was very hard for me to ask for help and to say I was struggling and I needed help but asking for help was the best thing I could ever have done and I'm so glad that I did that and part of my postnatal depression came from the ridiculous expectations I put on myself about what being a mother should be 
about being a perfect mother and no one is the perfect mother. I've come to realise I'm good enough. I'm a good enough mother and I love my girls like mad and, and I'm good enough. And for me, my sort of being a crap housewife, I liken to sort of almost being the phoenix rising from the ashes of my postnatal depression because what I have come to realise over time, and I'm nowhere there yet, I don't think any of us are ever there yet, we learn throughout our whole lives, but what I've come to learn over time is we have to embrace our imperfection and part of that for me comes with being a crap housewife and and how I suppose it initially started was simply through a conversation and it was a conversation off the back of um, some work I was doing with my memoir, Is This My Beautiful Life? And I was talking to a lovely journalist about, about my book and we were comparing stories our kids are of a similar age and she said to me do you know there are some people who post to Facebook and to Instagram these amazing lunches that they pack for their children each day (laughs) and I went you're joking but no that can't be true she said yeah it's true have a look so I looked and when I looked first of all I saw these amazing lunches and lots of fruit cut into star shapes and fun free nut free boring free balls of protein things on skewers and little pirate shaped sandwiches and all this fancy looking stuff and I looked at it and initially a part of me went oh my god I must be a terrible mother I just make Vegemite sandwiches and tiny (laughs) teddies for my kids I pack that in their lunches or they get a lunch order at school I'm terrible but then I went no Do not go down this rabbit hole of comparison. I then got angry and I said to this lovely um, woman, I said, you know what I'm going to do after we'd had this discussion? I said, I am going to post the actual food that I cook for my family each (laughs) night without a filter. I'm going to post the food with the hashtag crap housewife. So it began as a laugh in the sense of it began as a way of me reclaiming my sense of, you know what? you're enough. You're a crappy housewife. You're a shocking cook, but you know what? It's enough. You don't have to be good or perfect at everything. So, you know, I post the the sausos, the spaghetti bolognese, you know, mince is a highly underrated meat, (laughs) especially for little kids. You know, you can reinvent it. You can make the, the spag bowl, then you can use it for tacos. Then you can, you know, do whatever you want with it. You could put it in a lasagna or, you know, someone told me, make it a san choy bao, put it in a little lettuce leaf and things. So it's for me with, with Crap Housewife, what started as something for me to do has resonated with so many other, some blokes, but mainly women. And there's this wonderful tribe of fellow Crap Housewives. And I love it. Essentially, it's, it's, it's a tribe of women And we're all saying, you're enough because you're doing your best. And it's okay if you're not a great cook or if you serve up the sausos or if you have party pies or if you have toast for dinner every now and then or cereal. It's okay because you are doing your best. And there are other things that you are good at and chase joy in those things, being a chef is never going to be my thing, but my kids love my spag bowl and that's okay. That's enough. And, and that's for me what, you know, I, I love doing And for me as well, having a laugh at yourself, Katrina, I don't take myself too seriously. And the older I get, 
the less seriously I take myself. And I think that's important. We need to laugh at ourselves. And, and that's what I love about being a crap housewife. It's not about taking it too seriously and, and having a laugh. <laughs> Yes, and you certainly do bring me joy daily when I look at your Instagram feed. And I love how you now have all these incredible partnerships with brands who are also getting on board the Crap Housewife train. So it's really evolved. And that's what I love because it's that whole sense of none of us are perfect and but and we all we're all looking for shortcuts, we're all looking at ways to to still do things, but but it's life isn't perfect. Life is messy and chaotic, but that's actually what makes it so wonderful. Yes. Now, I would love to know, we've got four questions we finish up on. The first one is, what would be your number one confidence tip? Okay. It's hard to have just one. As you know, I do like to talk, but I would say fake it until you make it. Excellent. Is there a book that you've read or even an inspirational quote that's helped you on your way in your confidence journey? Oh, you know what? There's so many amazing books out there. I think I love um, Brene Brown and Daring Greatly, I just loved. I mean, I love all of her books and I think for, for people who are looking for uh, a sense of embracing their more vulnerable selves and and taking a risk, wanting to sort of leap into the unknown but going for it. I think she is such a wonderful writer and um, just sort of, I don't want to say confidant, I feel like I know her, but I just I love all of her books. But Daring Greatly I like in particular. Another book that I think is incredible and, and an author that I really like is Matt Haig. He's a British oh, writer yes. and he's done written a lot about his mental health experiences, but he wrote a beautiful book when he was going through a very difficult time in his life called Reasons to Stay Alive, and I just think that is such a wonderful book. And and he's also someone who's wonderful to follow on Instagram. His quotes are always just so spot on. And so, yeah, Matt Hager, I just love. I think he's amazing. Actually, he's on my wish list to get on the show. Oh, so, yes. um, yeah, yeah, I think he'd be amazing he to talk to. He really would. Yes. Now, you just kind of resonate joy, but I'd love to know what you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome attached to it. I have recently embraced wearing a hat to match my meal. So (laughs) I I went with my sister recently. I've got two sisters. My youngest sister, we were picking, I was driving with her to pick something up and we drove past a party shop and I went oh my god we have to go in there look at what's in the window there were all these crazy hats and I got a roast chicken hat I got a pizza (laughs) hat and I got a hamburger hat and I they they bring me joy because if I'm cooking that or if I've got takeaway I like to match the hat with the meal and I am though looking for a spaghetti bolognese hat and a nacho Okay, hat. let's put it out there. Yes, please. Right. And what do your what do your teenage daughters think of this? <laughs> they roll their eyes and go, "Oh, mu- what do you reckon?" They go, "Oh, mum, you are so embarrassing." But secretly, yeah. secretly, I think they enjoy it too. They have a bit of a oh. laugh too. 
Oh my gosh. Now, what are you working on right now in your own confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in life? Oh, well, I think to be totally honest, and I have been so honest, I don't know. I found this year a really tough year to be motivated, to be creative, to think about what to do next. And what I've found has got me through this year is not getting too far ahead and actually thinking, how am I getting through today? What are my silver linings of today? And this year for me, in a funny old way, has been about narrowing my expectations and lowering my expectations because for now it seems like our opportunities are limited for now. And so I don't know. But what I really dream and hope for in the future whenever that may come is I want to travel more again I want to have adventures I want to do things with an audience I had so much fun doing last year some live shows with my beautiful friend Denise Drysdale where we Mm. traveled through Victoria and did this crazy show to RSL clubs and laughed and talked and I even sing a song with her and we just it was so fun and I'd love to do some more of those sorts of things when we can so yeah I know that that's a very um I know that's a very sort of um meandering answer because I don't really know and and I've had to and I found that hard this year that to, to have to reassess well what can I do and what will I do Well, Jess, I don't think you're alone there, but thank you so much for all the wisdom you have shared throughout this beautiful conversation and on a personal level, the impact you've had in my life and the impact you've had in so many other people's lives too. You are just a ray of sunshine. Thank you. Oh, Katrina, you are a darling. Thank you for making my day. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.